Hello, everyone. Welcome back to the Free Black Thought Podcast. I am your host, Connie Morgan. Before I get into introducing my fabulous guest today, I want to say thank you. Thank you to everyone who downloads and listens. Thank you to anyone who leaves a comment, even if it's negative. Thank you to those of you who take the time to become subscribers, paid or unpaid. But I want to say a special thank you to those of you who have reviewed us on your given podcast streaming platform. I am such a dunderhead that I don't even think to check the reviews, truly. And the other day I thought, I wonder if we have any reviews. So I scoot on over to Apple Podcasts and lo and behold, we have 17 reviews and a five-star rating. Whoa, I was just, I don't know, so silly. I just thought, oh, no one would take the time to review a a little podcast like this one. And one user in particular wrote something so sweet, it almost made me tear up a little. It reads, I've been enjoying this podcast immensely. The guests and topics have varied widely. The conversations are calm to the point of being soothing. And most important to me, Connie, our host, is well-informed, deeply engaged with her guests, and delightful. This is from a user called Mean Librarian, and it was such a nice comment that I thought my husband wrote it, and I immediately brought it to his attention, and I was like, is this you? And he claims it was not, and obviously it's a really nice statement, and you call me out specifically, which is so kind, but what I love about it most is that you say, our host, as opposed to the host, which is exactly what I want, to build a community of people coming together, sharing ideas, debating, but doing so in good faith. I love that some of you, or perhaps most of you, see this podcast and this organization, at least in part, belonging to you, because it does. Without your support, we wouldn't exist. And so I'm going to open up myself a little bit more to y'all. I have a super easy email to remember. It's Connie at FreeBlackThought.com. If you have an idea for a podcast, guest, or topic, shoot me an email. If you want to say hi, shoot me an email. If you want to send me a critique, shoot me an email. I would love to hear from any and all of you. Please don't make it weird. But I would love to hear from you. Thank you so, 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 so much for your support. I truly adore the audience we have cultivated on our tiny corner of the internet. Okay, today's guest. He is the fabulous Dmitry Shovetitsky. Dmitry is a freelance journalist with a Jewish news syndicate and a junior research fellow at the Institute for the Study of Global Anti-Semitism Policy. Dimitri moved to Israel in 2019 and served in the Israel Defense Forces for two years. Today we are talking about what it means to be Black, American, Israeli, and Jewish. We're debunking some of the lies around Israel and explaining how IDF service works and how making Aliyah works. For context, this episode was recorded November 6th, so some time has passed, but you know what was true back then and is still true today? There is no such thing as a Black perspective, just Black people with perspectives. you know, born and raised in America, but have, have an RN in the, in the IDF as a black Jewish man. There's just, you bring so many different lenses and so many different perspectives. I think this is going to be a very interesting and enlightening episode for a lot of our listeners, but let's just like I do with everybody when they come on for the first time, let's start back at the beginning. Where were you raised? How did you grow up and where did your life and path sort of lead you to where you are today? Well, thank you for having me on here. I'll start by saying I was raised kind of all over the United States. My dad was in the U.S. Navy, so I grew up kind of moving around every every year, every few years. Um, I was born in Honolulu. I've lived in California and Texas, um, Virginia, uh, around the D.C. area, the suburbs sort of in Maryland. 
Um, I spent a year in New Orleans as well for college. And uh, I ended up finishing up college and getting my master's degree here in, in the Philly area where I'm speaking from and where I live now. And I was raised Jewish, but not in a super observant family. Um, so my mom is black and also has Sephardic roots, like with her Jewish side. So from Spain and Portugal, uh, I don't know how many uh, listeners know, but like the Sephardic Jewish world is from Spain, Portugal, and sort of the Mediterranean basin. And uh, my dad's family are Ashkenazi Jews from uh, sort of the area of Belarus, Ukraine, and Russia. So um, that's a little bit about my background. Dimitri, did they meet through their Jewish circles sort of overlapping? Is that what brought them together? Or was it sort of happenstance? They met and then like, oh, we're both Jewish. Great. No, it was happenstance. My my mom's older brother uh, was friends with my dad. Uh, they met on his graduation night. She's two years younger than him. And they ended up uh, starting to date and ultimately, you know, got married. They had me. And uh, then later they had three more kids. Um, so it, it wasn't like their connection didn't come from Judaism, really. Uh, my dad's family escaped from the Soviet Union. So they didn't, because of uh, the communist oppression there, they didn't really grow up knowing much about Judaism. But I was raised Jewish. We went to uh, synagogues growing up, not all the time, but Every every so often, you know, with certain holidays and Shabbat, um, on Sundays, there was religious school at the synagogues. And for a number of years, my brother and I went to Jewish day schools. Um, currently, my youngest two siblings are going to a Jewish day school. Both my brother and I went on birthright. And that actually, my experience on birthright in the summer of 2016 is when I kind of made the decision that I wanted to moved to Israel to make Aliyah to serve in the Israel Defense Forces. Okay, so before you made that choice in 2016, had, would you, like, you, you say you weren't like super, your family wasn't super observant, you did some of these things, was it more out of, hey, you know, traditions and tradition, tradition kind of thing? Or, and, and did that change over time? Is that still kind of where your faith is? Has it changed and evolved? Yeah, so a lot of people think about, um, Judaism as a religion or Jews as a religious group, which is which is true, but it's also a nation. So the same way people talk about the Cherokee Nation or the Apache Nation, it's an ethno-religious group. So it's both a people and a religion because also Judaism doesn't proselytize. So it's not like we go out and seek to convert people and therefore you have a bunch of you know different kinds of people that happen to share the same faith. Obviously, that does happen with some people who convert. But for the most part, because we don't proselytize, um, we're all almost all kind of related by shared ancestry as well. So, yeah, we grew up doing like Shabbat dinners and holidays and, you know, that kind of stuff. But I think a lot of our identity came from the idea of like the Jewish nationhood aspect, the peoplehood aspect. Um, and so I had, you know, me and my brother had bar mitzvahs, both my brothers, actually, my sister's still a few years shy of that. But uh, other than that, like I, I knew I wanted to go on birthright and to finally visit Israel. And I applied and got in and went in 2016 during the summertime, um, just right before I entered my senior year of college. And uh, I actually ended up staying an additional eight days there in Israel after the birthright trip came to an end. 
just, you know, I had a friend there that I was staying with and uh, really wanted to see more of the country. And then two years later, I came back and um, coming back, you know, I came back after being in uh, Cyprus for an internship during my master's degree. And Cyprus is very close. And I thought, why don't I come visit Israel and kind of see if this is still where my heart lies. And after that trip, I realized it was. So as I was finishing my master's degree, I started applying for a program called Garin Sabar, which takes a bunch of uh, Jewish youth, generally around the same age group, and kind of like, you know, some kind of attachment to Israel or, or Judaism. And there's four seminars. And uh, it's sort of like a process of seeing are you really dedicated to this? Who kind of fits and who doesn't? Who, you know, how can we mold the cohort? And at the end of that, if you pass through the four sessions, um, they send you to a kibbutz somewhere in Israel. So they sent me and 16 others in my cohort to a place called Kibbutz Erez, right by the Gaza Strip. Um, they placed us with host families, but we kind of lived together in dorms. And, you know, for three months before going into the army, we did all of the sort of bureaucracy that comes with uh, with immigration there. We learned Hebrew. We got to know the country more through trips, got to sort of immerse ourselves in the culture, did a lot of the holidays together. And uh, then after three months, we all drafted into the army. So when they were trying to figure out whether you're kind of, quote, like dedicated enough to this, what does that mean? Like, how do they know whether you're dedicated enough? How are they sort of screening you? They're asking like, um, well, one thing is how much time have you spent in Israel and how much Hebrew do you know? So of most of the people there, I probably spent the least amount of time. Mm -hmm. However, like they could tell, you know, that I was serious about this. It wasn't just like, I'm somebody who doesn't know what I want and I want adventure. Um, I don't really know like a path. They could tell that I'd done a lot of reading on the topic. I had written a lot about Israel and and the politics of that region um, for my bachelor's and master's degrees that I had been twice that I was even willing to go early to go to an extra Ulpan or Hebrew immersion course, um, just to also spend more time in the country. Um, and they ask like serious questions like, you know, are you like at all worried about, you know, the security situation there? Is that something that could scare you away or is being far away from your family difficult? And they also kind of observe how you interact with the group. And, you know, ask other people in the group, um, is there anybody you don't really think fits? And uh, I managed to get through all of that with with no problem. What did your family think with your dad, you know, having been in the American military and then you're kind of following in his, in his footsteps, but you're doing it in Israel, despite him also having that, you know, Jewish heritage. He didn't take that path. Were they excited? Were they wanting, were they like, yeah, I wish you would have you know, join the military over here? Did they, were they just make your choice and your choice will support you? What was that like? So um, actually a funny story is that, you know, when I was graduating high school, I had wanted to go into the U.S. military. Yeah. <laughs> um, we were living on uh, Camp Pendleton, a Marine Corps base, a little north of San Diego at the time, but they were like, no, go to college first. And then after birthright, I kind of thought about going into the IDF right then and, and was about to apply to Garin Sabar at that time. But I had missed the first two of the four seminars. And also my Hebrew is not as great as others. 
So they said, why don't you just, you know, you got into this master's program. Why don't you do that first and also take some Hebrew classes here, get through the master's, you'll be more qualified. And then, you know, that'll give you more time to kind of decide. Okay. And uh, when I ended up, you know, getting to that, to that phase in my life and graduating and going to the seminars and getting accepted, they were very supportive. Obviously, they were nervous about, you know, if some kind of war happened, as we're seeing now. Mm-hmm. And, uh, of course they would, you know, miss me in terms of the physical distance, but they're very supportive. They're very proud. There was never any kind of, you know, doubt about that I would make a difference or do well there. What can you actually just talk in layman's terms about making Aliyah and like the different ways people do it? And, you know, someone might be hearing this and think, okay, if they, you can, become an Israeli, if you join the IDF, you know, let's just make it very clear to people that kind of the different paths. Right. So um, there's a big organization called Nefesh Benefesh that is more geared towards uh, Jews in North America and Europe, Western Europe mostly, um, where if you can prove that you're Jewish um, under the law of return, so under the law of return in Israel, anybody who's Jewish can become a citizen or anyone with at least one Jewish grandparent. And that was inspired by, you know, the Nazi regime where, okay, somebody could be a Christian, but if they had one Jewish grandparent, they were considered Mm -hmm. a Jew and were sent to the death camp. So based off of that, after Israel's founding, they created something called the law of return, which is basically taking those laws and saying, because we have this experience of oppression, anybody with that, um, you know, whether they're practicing Jews or they just have one Jewish grandparent, you're entitled to become an Israeli citizen if you need a safe space from anti-Semitism, or even if you don't, even if you just want to move there and feel drawn to it. So there's that organization that helps a lot of people from Canada, the United States, uh, Great Britain, France, um, places like that. There are other organizations that uh, have also come about to help people from different countries. So um, after the collapse of the Soviet Union, for example, and now with what's going on with the Russo-Ukrainian war, there's different organizations helping Jews um, from those countries to to come to Israel that helped bring them uh, sort of en masse in the 1990s. There's other organizations doing the same for Ethiopian Jews. And there have been different, uh, historically different operations that the Israeli government and military have undertaken also to bring Jews under duress from uh, Islamic countries in the middle of the 20th century to bring them to Israel, sometimes covertly, sometimes with different kinds of deals made with help from the United States or other countries, you know, using transportation methods to bring those Jews to a third country like France or or Cyprus or something like that and bringing them from there to Israel. But that doesn't happen as much nowadays. So usually there's some kind of agency that works with the Israeli government that helps process your paperwork, makes sure that, you know, you're not some kind of criminal mm-hmm. who's trying to escape to Israel to avoid jail time, right. you know, that, that processes all of your documents to make sure you're Jewish. And, uh, and then, you know, the process can take some kind of time because Israel's bureaucracy is not very great, but, you know, that, that's kind of the, the way that it's done. So how do you prove that you're Jewish? So usually what you have to do is go to like your rabbi and have them write a letter saying, I know this 
person is, you know, this person has been coming to my congregation. I know this person's family, they're Jewish, or I'm, you know, I converted this person as a rabbi. You know, if it's somebody who went through a conversion, I say that they're Jewish. They write like a letter. The agency goes through like the rabbi's background to make sure it's a sort of legitimate person. Mm -hmm. And then that's pretty much all that's really needed. Um, at least for nefesh benefesh, I can't say for certainty how it's done in different cases, um, like where there might be a war zone or something like that, such as what we see now in Ethiopia or with the Soviet Union. But usually it's something kind of similar. But I, I can't say like for certain uh, what what exactly the differences are. Do you know at all kind of what the stats are in terms of people who apply and get denied or accepted? I don't know for sure. I, I'm I'm pretty sure that uh, most people that apply get accepted. Yeah. I haven't I haven't really heard of like people trying to be fraudulent. At least through the organization I used, um, you know, trying to get into there and, and that kind of thing. Yeah. Okay. Well, that's good to hear. Uh, so, tell us how the, the the draft works and who has to serve in Israel and who doesn't and that kind of thing. Right. So in Israel, um, every every Jewish person has to serve except for, you know, if you have a disability or something like that, you have the option of going uh, into national service, which is basically some kind of volunteer work um, that counts as serving the country um, for a certain period of time. That usually happens also with a lot of uh, particularly religious women who they they can serve in the army and many of them choose to. And Others instead choose to do national service instead. The ultra-Orthodox Jewish community is not mandated to serve, but that's changing a little bit in light of uh, this war in particular. A lot more are deciding to volunteer to join in the army, as some have in the past. Others have also opted to do national service. And this usually happens like right after you get out of high school. For those who are immigrating like I did, if you fall into that same age range as well, like 18, 19, um, 20, you're obligated to serve. For me, I was the oldest of my group. I was I was 24 by the time I finally drafted. At that age, you can, if you immigrate, you can kind of technically choose, do you want to or do you not? I chose to do so, but there are some people who choose not to. And uh Otherwise, in Israel, there's also two other communities that um, do serve in the army that are not Jewish. So there's a group called the Druze, and all of their men also are obligated to serve uh, in the military. And another group called the uh, uh, Circassians. So this is like a a majority Muslim ethnic group from the Northern Caucasus. Uh, Some of them, you know, in the 19th century were displaced during Russia's invasions and and came to the Ottoman Empire, of which Israel at the time was a part. So there's a community of them uh, in northern Israel mostly, and uh, their men are also obligated to serve. But you also like have uh, different different groups that aren't obligated that still volunteer to. So there's a lot of Bedouin Arab citizens or Christian Arab citizens in particular that decide to join the IDF because they feel that it will better integrate them into the society and many of them love the country. And so you also see that. Is it a point of contention amongst Israeli people that like ultra-Orthodox Jews don't have to enlist? Yes, that is that is a big 
yeah, that that's been that's been a huge issue in the society. Many ultra orthodox still do volunteer, if not for the military for a national service, but but there's been an exemption where basically they can go and be paid by the state to study religious texts, and that that is, in their view, some form of service to the country. And uh, you know, a lot of them have very large families and live off of welfare. So there's a lot of people in Israel who have, uh, you know, who feel a certain way about that, that they're serving the country and paying taxes for these people to kind of be isolated from much of society. And, uh, you know, this is also especially troubling for people because there are religious Jews who may not be ultra Orthodox, but also study these kinds of texts and observe um, religious laws and still serve in the military. Right. So that's another sort of point of contention. I do the I do think though that in light of this war something will something big will will come from that societally that will that will change. Are you seeing more calls for that to change now? Or are they just voluntarily saying, okay, we get it. You need you need us, you need more bodies. Or is it gonna have to be more of a force? No, I, I think that there will eventually, probably in the coming years, be laws where they will have to serve, um, if I were to guess. But I think that a lot of people after the October 7th mass lynching from those communities, not even just about needing more bodies, but feeling like we want to help. We want to help the war effort and we want to defend our land and we're part of this country. And a lot of them, like even today, just 170 of them volunteered and, and were drafted. And on Monday, I um, next Monday, I believe another 170 are set to. There have been several hundred more before that, uh, before today, you know, after the incident on October 7th. And I expect that that will continue. But, you know, I'm not trying to say that there's no participation from this community at all in helping the state. There are many who volunteer and who serve as medics and things like that. But I do think that after this war and, and certainly during, uh, there's going to be a big reconsideration within that community about IDF service. Yeah, that'll be interesting to follow and see if that if that changes or how it does change in the future. When you are drafted, so I have a military background as well. I was in the United States Army. And, you know, when you join, you join with a specific job and you don't actually really get, you get to pick your job sort of based on the needs of of the army. So this is what we have available according to your test scores. This is what jobs you can take. Which one do you want? Then you pick and you go. Is that kind of how it works for the IDF or do they test you and say, okay, you're really going to be great. We can tell you could be a great medic or you'd be, you know, good in field artillery or how is, how is your job chosen? Right. So it, it's pretty similar. So something that was a little different for us as, as new immigrants were um, we went into the draft office and we had to take a Hebrew test. And for those who have Israeli parents and might already have been Israeli citizens who had a, a decent level of Hebrew, um, what they did was they took their test and how they picked it is, first of all, if you're physically qualified to do combat, you know, you're probably going to go into combat and probably want to. So what you have to do for that is you can choose between, I think it's your top two combat choices, like actual direct combat, um, and then three combat support. And it really comes down to where they need people. 
and then what you're capable of. If you're at a certain profile where you don't really fit combat, um, there's a different process. There's a different number of jobs you can do. So there's, you know, army journalists and photographers. There's people that go and are kind of like social workers in the army, more or less. There's people that go and teach uh, Hebrew where, you know, and I'll get to that part in a second. So there's people that go teach Hebrew and, and you know, things like that um, in different kinds of logistical jobs. Um, as well as intelligence jobs, cyber jobs, those require a number of different tests. Okay. So what happened with us, though, is a lot of us had some basic Hebrew. And this is after we had done a few months of uh, Hebrew classes in Israel as well. But we didn't meet the Hebrew score to kind of go right into the army. So what happened was we went to a base in, in uh, Israel called Michve Alon which is uh, somewhere where a lot of new immigrants go. Also some of the, um, you know, Bedouin and Druze communities who speak Arabic. And you do the most basic form of boot camp there while also doing very intensive uh, Hebrew classes pretty much all day. Okay. You do some guard duty, you do things like that. That's for about three months. And then afterwards you take the test, you see if you qualify, um, you know, in terms of Hebrew, pretty much everyone passes. And then there, that's where we did our kind of uh, choosing which jobs or interviews. Like we were interviewed by people. We took different tests to see what we qualified for. And then we later at the end of that process ended up going to receive our assignments. And uh, that's kind of how that works out. Okay. And what are the most competitive branches or jobs? So with the non-combat jobs, it tends to be things with cyber or uh, different kinds of intel. Um, those are very competitive and high in demand. A lot of people call Israel the startup nation. And um, so a lot of people from, you know, from those backgrounds, after they finish their service, it's quite easy for them to get a job either working for the government in some kind of cyber or intelligence capacity or, or moving into a startup that can be very lucrative. But also like for the Air Force as well, that's very elite and is something else that requires a whole different set of tests and, and, you know, background checks and stuff like that. And many of those people go on to be pilots for El Al, the national airline, and, and also work for the government. But other very competitive uh, jobs for combat, um, there's the paratroopers unit. You have to do a whole nother sort of tryout over a few days in different kind of commando units as well. If you meet a certain profile, you, you can be asked or invited to participate in a tryout, you know, to see if you have like the physical yeah. and teamwork and leadership kind of skills for that. Besides that, some other competitive units um, are the Golani and Givati infantry brigades, which are, you know, very well known and decorated and celebrated for their accomplishments. Right now, both of them are fighting very heavily in Gaza and are doing a pretty good job mm -hmm. from what it looks like. So, yeah, those are those are pretty uh, attractive groups for a lot of people, especially immigrants. And then there's the border police, um, the ones who sort of wear the gray uniform that you usually see in Jerusalem. Um, that also kind of requires a little bit of a separate process to try and join. Um, but that also, especially with with immigrants to Israel, is is pretty popular. Can you talk about, and, you, and you've hinted at it, and well, you haven't hinted at it, you just straight up mentioned and talked about the kind of the diversity of, of the IDF with Druze and Christians and Arabs and all that kind of thing. How is it different for Arab or Christian soldiers 
if at all, in what ways do they have different struggles or different things? Like, you know, we see Arab soldiers having to wear masks and things like that when they're, especially when if there's any pictures taken and that sort of thing, because they might be targeted. Uh, can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, so I was um, in the Givati Brigade and uh, I ended up being a shooting instructor there um, in the end. But there's a group in that brigade that's made up of Bedouin and their job is a little bit different. Uh, they have their own sort of unit within where, you know, they're almost entirely commanded by Bedouin. You know, they speak Arabic a lot of the times amongst each other. And it's, they're put like in certain places along the borders with Gaza or Egypt, and they know a lot of the land, almost like scouts. So that's kind of the capacity that they work in. But for when they go home, um, and this is also the same, by the way, for a lot of ultra-Orthodox uh, Jewish soldiers who volunteer. Usually when a soldier goes home, they're wearing their dress uniform, you know, maybe carrying their gun with them, things like that on the bus or, or however they're getting home. But for a lot of these communities where being in the military is controversial, you know, where they might kind of be harassed or, or God forbid, attacked um, if they're seen in uniform going there, um, they can get sort of like an exemption to where they can maybe hand in their gun um, on base and just get it when they come back and and go home in civilian clothing. So that's something that unfortunately a lot of them have to deal with. Not all the time, but it does happen. Um, other than that, I mean, I would I wouldn't say that there's any huge significant difference with like Christian volunteers, not from what I've seen. There are some people I know from the former Soviet Union who had like a Jewish grandparent, let's say, but they were Christian, but they served with everyone else. Like there was no real, you know, like separate struggle for the most part for them. One guy I served with, I think his father was Jewish and his mom was Christian and he grew up Christian. And so instead of like, because, you know, we go home for Fridays and Saturdays, a lot of the times for the Sabbath, like he came back a little bit later on Sunday so he could have time to go to church mm. beforehand. Yeah. Okay. So there, there are little adjustments that happen a lot of times for people from from those communities. And that's not to say that there aren't occasional difficulties or, or prejudices, but that's just what I saw. Yeah, yeah. And of course, there's always, you put humans together, there's going to be <laughs> prejudices and things that come up. That's just human nature. So I don't think anybody mm -hmm. should expect the IDF to be perfect or any organization or military to be perfect, because that's absurd. But I think... There's a, there's a lot of cohesion that goes on in the IDF that sort of bucks a lot of the narratives that we hear about, you know, Israel being apartheid and extremely racist. And so, you know, you have a perspective of the military specifically, but of course, you lived in Israel, you know, Israel, like as a whole and the civilian population as well. Can you talk about, I mean, you're a black Jew. It's like, sometimes I feel that Americans just don't want to acknowledge that such a thing exists, right? They see Jews as white. Arabs is brown, and those are the categories that people go into. Can you talk about the diversity of the Israeli population in general? And if you see kind of, I feel like I'm seeing a growing Black Jewish population in Israel and in the U.S., but I would love your perspective. Yeah, so I'll start by saying this. A lot of people have this image of Israel as a Western 
European kind of country. And for those who, who go to Israel, I feel like if they're kind of paying attention, or especially if they're going to places outside of like downtown Tel Aviv, they're going to see that it's very much not a Western country. It's, it's a country that may have adopted certain things from the West in, in the sense that somewhere like South Korea or Japan would have, right? They're industrialized in their democracies. Yeah. That doesn't mean they're Western, like that smells and tastes and the way people talk and the music that you hear around is not Western. The way people look or dress sometimes is not Western. And I do think that part of the reason Israel struggles sometimes with uh, battling sort of campus progressive uh, anti-Semitism is because so many people in Israel have tried very hard to be seen as part of the Western world instead of just being proud of who they are. And this is something that also has the state has struggled with for many decades. I mean, the country did start off being, uh, you know, being founded by mostly Ashkenazi Jews. In the middle of the 20th century, though, about a million, close to a million Jews from Islamic countries were expelled or moved to Israel. And that changed the entire population. Then in 1979, a lot of Jews fleeing uh, the Islamic revolution in Iran came. Uh, In the 80s and 90s, a lot of Jews from Ethiopia And even a lot of the Jews from the Soviet Union, from the Central Asian or Caucasus areas, who are, you know, not Ashkenazi came as well. So you have suddenly this huge influx of people from non-Western communities. And what we think of as Jewish food here, you know, the the deli stuff and the bagel is very hard to find in Israel. Whereas like a lot of things one might imagine as being sort of like Greek or Persian cuisine here in the West that's much closer to the common, you know, sort of home style food you would find there because that's what the population is. Over half of Israel's population's ancestry is from the Islamic world, from Ethiopia. And actually, when you really think about it, it's more than that because you have people who, you know, might have a mom from Ethiopia and a dad from Libya or a father from Uzbekistan and a mother from Germany and like all these people have started intermarrying. And so everybody, you know, it's a, it's a country that when you go there, you're probably going to see somebody that for the average person who's never been what they would assume is an Arab, right. Based off of stereotypes, or they would assume it's, you know, like an Eritrean or something and they're Jews. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It's, Everybody looks very ethnically ambiguous. Not everybody, but there's many ethnically ambiguous yeah. people look looks wise in Israel. Right, and I think it's. I just find it interesting that you hear a lot of uh, from from the campus sort of progressives this idea that they want to not be so Western centric or Eurocentric or American centric, and yet when they look at Israel or have these ideas about Israel, they're imposing these very Western-centered ideas on a country in the Middle East, Mm -hmm. um, whether it's about race or politics and stuff. And so I just find that hypocritical and and kind of shows a lack of experience or openness. Do you think, and I'm, you know, very interested in learning about Israel and Judaism, even though I'm a Christian, I'm like in kind of in this world where I'm definitely paying attention more than the average person. But I feel like I'm seeing so many like social media accounts and people just speaking out about not just like your family that has had this 
tie to Judaism and you're, you're black Jews, but you've been black Jews, you know, a lot of, not a lot, but I should say I'm noticing more and more blacks like converting to Judaism as well. Do you think that the, is that just me kind of living in my bubble? And so I'm seeing it because that's the kind of content I'm sort of seeking out. That's what the algorithm's giving me. Or is there actually like a kind of a black Jewish movement happening? I think that there's a number of people who are converting and, but, but more than that, I would say there's more people who are black who are, you know, whether they converted or they just, you know, they were born Jewish who are coming out and speaking out more, Mm -hmm. you know, about their experiences being Jewish or their pride of being Jewish and black. And I think that's a great thing. Um, I also think there's starting to be a little bit more visibility about, even in Israel, communities who are Jewish that are from Ethiopia or other countries that are, you know, quote unquote, brown, um, and that that helps people here um, from similar backgrounds kind of feel more pride in expressing themselves. But I I think that's a great thing. I also think there's a lot of people who aren't Jewish, but are from, you know, communities of color, or or even who aren't who go travel to Israel and, and feel some kind of bond with the country or with Judaism. And I think that's a great example of uh, cross-cultural connections. Do you personally face more um, kind of anti-Semitism or racism due to being Black? Which one? Or maybe you don't really get either. So I personally haven't really faced any of those issues in Israel. A lot of people there, you know, also didn't really know what I was <laughs> until I told them. So they're like, your name is Dimitri, but... You're brown like us. <laughs> like, what are you? like I've had that comment made to me in the army. And I told him, oh, I'm black. And, and also like my dad is born in Russia. Like, oh, really cool. And like, you know, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. So part of it was I was sort of exotic to them. It's it's not like in Israel, it's not that the concept of a black Jew is, is weird, but a black American Jew is sort of exotic, yeah. right? Because most of the black Jews they know are, are Ethiopian. Right. Um, so that was that was interesting. I do know that the the Ethiopian community has has faced difficulties in Israel, much like you know before them, uh, a lot of the the Jews who came from Islamic countries faced similar uh, difficulties, and and also a lot of Jews from the from the former Soviet Union. Um, you know, there's been certain doubts about how Jewish they are and things like that as well, um, and I've heard comments about that. Um, but I've also heard and seen other d- very disturbing things um, regarding Black Jews in Israel. There's, you know, some of these, uh, some of the Arab communities, mostly Palestinians compared to Arab Israelis, say like the word that they use to describe people who are Black is is slave. That's what it literally means. Mm-hmm. During one of the flare-ups a few years ago, there was like a joke on their social media and it said something like, where does the Ethiopian Jew belong? And it was, the answer was the back of the oven, right? Mm-hmm. So like the oven because the Holocaust and in right. the back, like with black people on the back right. of the bus. Yeah. So there's certain things like that, that are, you know, just horrible. Um, and certainly not for everybody from that community thinks that way. But um, there, there were a lot of things like that, that were, that were very troubling. But most everybody gets along. Like when I was in like the Givati Brigade is is pretty diverse. It's like partially Jews from Muslim countries and then partially Ethiopian and then a lot of Jews from the Soviet Union. So like there would be a lot of kind of jokes made in good fun that everybody made about everyone, but I never saw any kinds of uh, 
you know, serious issues of bigotry in that, in that respect. Um, but you know, the country does, uh, you know, it's not immune from, from any kind of discrimination and there's still ways to improve, but I think that, that that's just going to keep getting better as time goes on. I mean, you have people marrying people from other communities and during trying times like this, everyone kind of comes together. So I see it going in a positive direction. Do you face any kind of discrimination here in the States, especially now post October 7th? Um, I haven't personally, but maybe that's because I'm a bit of an introvert and don't (laughs) interact with too many people. But no, I I haven't uh, personally faced it. I've seen a lot of uh, stuff online. I know that my brother has has dealt with a lot, as have my mom. Um, There have been times like going into synagogues or Jewish day schools where you know, there have been questions asked and, uh, you know, that kind of just feel awkward and sort of unwelcoming or pointed. For my mom and my brother, a lot of that was her being Black. And for me, it was because my name is Dimitri and it sounds very non-Jewish. So that kind of, you know, that that stuff is never pleasant to to be around. But I wouldn't say that most people are like that. I wouldn't say that's something that defines my personal experience with the Jewish community here. And also, I haven't really dealt with that from the Black community on the other side. I I personally haven't dealt with anti-Semitism from the Black community, but I have seen it online. And I think a lot of it comes from misconceptions. And I uh, will say that I find it unfortunate that, you know, when things happened, like with Kanye West and all that stuff last year, um, there was a lot of, there were a lot of like misconceptions and in, in hyping up tensions to more than I felt they really were um, on the ground, like with ordinary people. And I also saw a lot of panels where you would have like discussions of, you know, repairing the black Jewish relationship. And you would have on the panels, Jews who weren't black and black people who weren't Jewish talking to each other. And I was like, okay, that's great, but what about people who are both? Yeah. I mean, we're sort of the natural bridge to help facilitate this discussion. And so there were times where it did feel like we were being shut out by people on both sides, perhaps, mm. or maybe they just didn't consider us. So that that is something that I think needs to be discussed more. When people ask you, why is a Jewish state necessary? What do you say? Uh, I say three things. For one is obviously the the historical record of anti-Semitism throughout for thousands of years in most countries has proven that no country is really going to take care of us and protect us as it may for other communities. So that's that's number one. Number two is every people, I think, has the right to a state. I mean, nobody's questioning, you know, the right of the Greek people to have their own country. Nobody's questioning the right of the Irish people to have their own country. So why question ours? And the third part is that we are, the Jewish people are the Aboriginal people of Israel. And for that matter, and it might sound controversial, but also of of the West Bank or Judea and Samaria, um, we're the native people of that land. And uh, there's this misconception that, you know, we're colonizing the land, but that, you know, if you look at archaeology, if you look at DNA testing, it, it, it puts us there in that country. 
Um, whereas, you know, for, if we want to talk about settler colonization, then we have to talk about the Arab conquest and how the Arabs came out of Arabia and took not just Israel from the Jews, but took other parts of the Fertile Crescent from the native Assyrian and Kurdish populations, took Northern Africa from the native Berber and Coptic Christian and Black African populations, and so on and so forth. And uh, that's where the Palestinians descend from. So what I always talk about is, um, you know, people say, oh, the Palestinians have lived there for hundreds of years. Well, so have white people in North America. That doesn't make them the natives of this country. That doesn't mean they all have to necessarily leave. But I think if we have to talk about a peace process or acknowledging the truth, if we believe in science and believe in history, well, then let's talk about it. Let's acknowledge the history and the science. And so, and I think that, you know, anybody who's for indigenous rights would have to acknowledge that Zionism is the indigenous rights liberation movement of the Jewish people. Right. And my question is always like, well, how far back do you want to go? Because it seems like for certain populations, you only go back 100 years to determine who has the right to the land. But other populations, you want to go back 500 years or 1000 years or however far back to your point about white people living in America for for hundreds of years. And I've never actually gotten a solid answer for someone making those claims, you know, like how far back do we need to go to determine who are the indigenous people of any given piece of land? Right. Well, I think it also depends on the culture of the said people. So everything in Judaism is rooted to the land. And I like to say the land, it's not that the land belongs to us, but that we belong to that land. So almost anything that you find from the Jewish holidays is rooted in something having to do with the land of Israel. So there's something, for example, called Shemitah, which is like every seventh year, you let the land rest, you don't cultivate it. That's specific to Israel. It's not a law that Jews follow outside of Israel. Um, the Sukkot holiday for harvest and, uh, and Passover, certain things are very rooted in seasons and and plants and things like that within the land itself, the seven species, right? Things that grow specifically within Israel that you can't do in other countries. Um, or even if you can, it's just not, it's just not the same. Mm -hmm. So also, um, you know, Jews pray to Jerusalem, right? Yep. Like that's the centrality of, of our faith. And they say at the Passover table, you know, next year in Jerusalem, every Passover that's said at the end of the Seder. Um, so there's a lot of things that, not just about how long or the archaeology, but the culture is very rooted in that. For Palestinians, they can have an attachment to the land, you know, and I would say certainly more so if, if they're Christian Palestinians. But Islam is very centered on things in, in the Arabian Peninsula, the direction they pray, certain things that they eat or their holidays and their faith come in other cultural things come from the Arabian Peninsula. And this isn't to say that they can't, I mean, I, I think people should be able to live where they choose as long as they're following the laws of, of those countries. Um, but just, you know, in terms of indigenous cultures or the attachment to land and, and land back and these kind of concepts, um, I think that's another thing more than, you know, how long do you have to live somewhere to be indigenous is more of how does how does your identity, how is it shaped to the land? How central is that to you? I think they kind of go hand in hand. And I think that those are two 
you know, ways of looking at it that, that the second one that I just brought up often gets overlooked. Yeah, that's a really good point. And it's just not something unless, I mean, some people do have it, have that sort of connection to the land. You know, this farm has been in our family for 200 years or 150 years or whatever here in the States, but none of it is as ancient because America is a younger country. Um, so Native Americans might have that connection for a thousand years or whatever, but the, for the vast majority of Americans, that way of looking at land is totally foreign to us. Uh, and so it is a perspective and it's a way of, of looking at things that I think Americans like simply can't do because we don't, most of us don't do that. Yeah, yeah. And I think, um, you know, that's just another example of, of what I was saying before with how, you know, some people will try and use that as a weapon against Zionism, for example. And that's just another way of imposing sort of a Western lens on, you know, a non-Western culture or country. Mm-hmm, 100%. So actually, going back a little bit to like getting making all the odd and having citizenship and all that. Well, you're not in Israel right now, you're back in the States. So you have citizenship. Do, do most Israelis have citizenship in more than one country? And why are you in the States? If what if and when you have a family one day, will you raise them in Israel or United States? How do you determine where you're living at any given point in time? So I don't know if most Israelis have a second citizenship, but I know that a significant amount do, um, whether that's because, you know, they have citizenship from whatever country that their family immigrated from or something that happened a few years ago is that uh, Spain and Portugal, to make up for the um, Inquisition, offered Sephardic Jews also citizenship in those countries if they could you know, show documents or proof or things like that mm-hmm. you know, to the governments. I believe Portugal just ended the process, but um, that, that was done for some time, and a lot of Jews did take that offer up. The reason I came back was just because Israel's not a cheap country. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and uh, there's a lot more job opportunities here. But, you know, I, I plan on visiting often. Um, I would love to go back and live there at some point. Hopefully things are a little more affordable in the future. Also, you know, with, with, uh, with the government in power there now, there are a lot of things going on that I just didn't want to be a part of. Mm-hmm. But you know, that, that government, I don't think will last very much longer. So that's something else I'll have to revisit. And I do plan on going back there to vote to change that. But, um, my brother lives there and his wife, um, they plan on having a family there. And, you know, I, because of that as well as in a number of, you know, friends I have that still live there, I do plan on going back, but I'm also somebody who, I guess, just because of my upbringing, I'm kind of used to moving around a lot. Yeah. So it's a little hard for me to stay in one place, but I, w- I would like at some point to settle down. And uh, I don't know where that will be yet, whether it'll be here or in Israel or some other place, but we'll have to see what the future holds. If, if Jews got together and they said, you know what, F it, we'll give up Israel. It pains us a lot, but instead we're going to go buy you know, we're going to put all our resources together and we're going to go buy an island somewhere out in, you know, I don't know, the Polynesian sector of the world. Nobody lived there. It's uninhabited. So we're not kicking anybody out. This is going to be the new quote unquote Israel. Do you think they would still have problems (laughs) with people targeting, 
targeting them. Yeah, I think that there will be there will always be some way for people to find the world's ills and blame it on the Jews. So, you know, long ago, several centuries ago, it was about religion. You know, Jews betrayed Muhammad or Jews killed Christ or something like this. And so it was a religious-based hatred. With the Nazis, it was about race. And Jews were defiling the white race and things like that. And that was the way that they came for us. Today, it's about the country of Israel existing and being, you know, against social justice, whatever that means. Um, it's always the fault of Zionism. And this is actually something that the Soviet Union started. And unfortunately, it's still with us just under more politically correct terms, I would say. But the, the ideology is very much the same, that Jews are in, in the way of, of social justice for the masses of the world. And I do think that that phase will go away. Um, but I think there will be some other way that people can find, uh, you know, something wrong with society probably 300 years from now and they'll blame it on Jews and, and somebody will always try to come get us. But, you know, all the people that have tried in the past, the Roman Empire, the Soviet Union, the Nazis, they no longer are with us. Neither the ancient Egyptians, neither are the Assyrians. Um, they're no longer with us, but we're still here. Mm -hmm. And something I feel proud of is that we are the only nation that has seen, you know, not every person, obviously, but the only nation that can remember back to the time of the Assyrian Empire and still be here. Mm -hmm. Like the only group of people that can, as a people, remember what they've done to us and the Babylonians and the Romans and, every, you know, so on and so forth, but that still exist. So I have all the confidence that things will get better. It's never easy. And, you know, certainly not for someone who is Jewish and black and many other things. I'm also gay. So there's that. Um, <laughs> there's a lot of people who are going to try and come for the Jews and for all these other groups, yeah. let alone someone who's all of that, all of the above. But that, you know, I, I do believe that most people are good. And knowing that, you know, all the traumas and horrors that have come after my people's black and Jewish that are, you know, we've come a long way and uh, we're much stronger and more powerful now. And so I have all the faith that things are just going to keep getting better. Do you have a way of quickly debunking the apartheid myth about Israel? Yes. Um, so in, <laughs> in apartheid South Africa, you would never have seen a black person sitting with a white person on a bus. You would never have seen a black doctor treating white patients. You would never have seen mixed race uh, people or, or South Asian people serving as judges or in the military alongside white, you know, white citizens. You would never have seen that even in, in Jim Crow America, which was its own form of apartheid. Mm -hmm. You know, in Israel, you see, like I trained Bedouin Arab soldiers they're israeli citizens they have all the same rights they voted i saw we voted on the military bases they voted for their candidates whoever they were just like the rest of us did they serve in government there were no black or other non-white peoples in the apartheid government of south africa and there certainly weren't any in the jim crow south it just it didn't happen there were no black police officers serving in in Mississippi, policing white communities right. in 1949, I mean, the way that there are 
Arab police officers serving Jewish communities, Jewish neighborhoods in Jerusalem, or even Jewish settlements, as some people call them. So, I mean, just the idea is ridiculous, and it's very offensive, you know, as not just as a Jewish Israeli citizen, but as a black person to belittle our experiences in pain that way. And I'm shocked at the amount of even of some of these fringe uh, black progressives who buy into this and aren't and aren't deeply disturbed by the belittlement of our of our historical trauma. And uh, actually, that you know, I, I kind of encountered this in a separate on a separate uh, experience. You know, in my master's program, we went to Northern Ireland to learn about the troubles, and um, I was one of three black people there. One was uh, her family was from Liberia and another is a Haitian American. And so we were touring this uh, Catholic neighborhood of Belfast with someone who I believe he used to be in the IRA, very progressive. I would bet that he hates Israel. And he turned to both of us and he said, we had it worse than apartheid. Mm -hmm. And the three of us just looked at each other and gave us that look. (laughs) I'm pretty sure that we'll know. And I'm like, did he really just do that? I mean, first of all, None of us are from the South and none of us are from South Africa. So that was a little bit weird to say in the first place. But then, like, are you really going to say that? And, and why? And why bother saying it? I mean, I don't get this comparison of traumas either. Things can happen that are bad to any community and they don't have to be compared. Right. So I just find that um, just offensive on so many levels, the apartheid argument and very factually untrue and and just, you know, it's an alternative fact. That's how (laughs) I'll say that. An alternative fact. Okay. Final question before we go to the speed round. Do, what were your feelings about the relationship or the partnership or the allyship between the United States and Israel before October 7th and now after? So, before October 7th, I felt that things were good, but could have been better. Afterwards, I feel a little bit more comforted about the relationship, but still there's, you know, there's things that give me concern. And um, I'll say that what gives me concern is this constant, and it might sound controversial to some people, but I'm just going to say it, this narrative that most Gazans um, are good, you know, civilians are good people who don't like Hamas and are oppressed by them and want nothing to do with them. And this is just not true. I mean, we've seen from, I remember when I was six years old at the time, seeing the Palestinians dancing and celebrating the attacks on September 11th. Mm-hmm. I remember countless other incidents where there was terrorism against Jews and even against foreigners that they have sat dancing out in the streets and handing out candies. And they did the same thing on October 7th. I, I saw horrible images that I will never get out of my mind of Jewish corpses being dragged through the street and trampled on while people handed out desserts and candies and, and things like this celebrating and, and playing music. And it just reminds me as a black person of the lynch mobs, where even if the people around a lynched black person, someone's corpse, didn't string them up or beat them and and burn them alive, they took souvenirs from it. They took pieces of the rope and they made postcards out of photos of of the corpses and they took teeth and and burned bones from, from those people and sent it out to their friends as if this was some kind of great 
you know, some kind of great trophy. And this is the same kind of mentality that there is in the Gaza Strip with most of the civilians there. Um, I'm not going to say everyone. There are many people there who who hate Hamas and who are, you know who do want peace. But this idea that most Gazan civilians are are good and and you know want peace and and are fine living alongside the Jews is just fake. I mean, it's just not true. And I would have hoped that more. Americans, especially with our experience with lynching and Jim Crow, would have understood this. Mm -hmm. Um, And this is something that needs to be discussed very widely, because if you can't talk about the truth, there can't be peace. Right. And we've seen that with, you know, even people talk about the so-called moderate Palestinian authority in Ramallah, that, um, you know, they're willing to discuss peace. And yet they continue to make comments about how the Russian and Ethiopian Jews aren't really Jews and the Jews have no ties to the land and we refuse to recognize Israel as a Jewish state. So I think there needs to be a serious, deep reexamination within the State Department and within the U.S. government as a whole, especially in the media and academia, about who, who are these people and how can we change this society And it's going to take a lot of work, just like in Germany with the denazification process or Japan uh, after World War II as well. Um, That's something that needs to be said outright. It needs to be said and it needs to be worked on instead of doling out cash to prolong the problem and create an industry out of peacemaking, where if you actually solve it, it gets rid of a lot of jobs. Right. So that is the big problem I see, although I do think that you know, I was I was pleasantly surprised to see at least closer to October 7th and even still a little bit now um, how many ordinary Americans and even how many media outlets like CNN kind of woke up to the truth and and uh, covered a lot of things they otherwise wouldn't have before that horrific attack. Mm-hmm. So that does give me some hope. Well, good. That's that's a nice little note to end on there. A hopeful note. So let's go into the, the speed round and then it will be your chance to get any final thoughts after your, off your chest after that. Are you ready for your, for your 10 questions? Yes. All right. Dimitri, does pineapple go on pizza? Yes. Are golfers athletes? No. What is your favorite board game? Um, probably sorry. Are you afraid of ghosts? No. MLK or Malcolm X? MLK. Should Pluto still be considered a planet? No. What is the biggest issue facing Black America today? Ooh. um, Self-hatred. Black or African American? Black. Booker T or W.E.B. Du Bois? Booker T. Is Rachel Dolezal a bad person or just misunderstood? <laughs> oh, um, misunderstood and can be helped. There you go. Those are your 10 questions. You got through them pretty quickly. You understood the assignment. Do you have any final thoughts to share with us? Um, I just am grateful for the opportunity and uh, hope that I helped open uh, some people's minds up. And, you know, if anybody has any questions, they can find me on, I guess, Twitter or Facebook or anything, and I'd be happy to answer them. Awesome. We'll include links to those things in our show description so people can reach out. Thank you so much for coming on, Dimitri. This is an enlightening episode. Thank you.
for listening to the Free Black Thought Podcast. Free Black Thought.